Good afternoon and welcome to the Aspen Institute Economic Opportunities Program webinar, Worker Organizations Respond to the COVID-19 Crisis. I am Maureen Conway, a Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. We have a terrific set of panelists to have this conversation with today and we'll dive in in just a minute. But first, I want to know our deep appreciation for the support of Prudential Financial in bringing you the Job Quality and Practice webinar series. Prudential and our valued colleague, Sarah Kay, have played an instrumental role in supporting all of our job quality work. And we are deeply appreciative to their commitment to quality jobs and an inclusive economy. This is the fifth in our Job Quality and Practice webinar series. The series is designed to support practitioners across fields, including worker advocacy, workforce development, economic development, capital deployment, policy, business strategy, and more to address job quality work in their work. Webinars share, action, webinars share actionable tools and approaches, highlight leading practitioners' work, create connections across discipline, and hopefully spark new ideas and fresh thinking regarding opportunities to advance job quality. So to quickly review the uh, technology for today's webinars, all the, all the attendees of the webinar are muted. Um, please use the Q&A box on the bottom of the Zoom window for questions or comments. Uh, you can chat those in at any time and we'll uh, address those at the end of the, at the, end of the webinar. Um, we're thrilled with the participation in today's event. Um, so we will respond to as many questions as we can in our time. But if there's an important issue that you wanted us to address that we just didn't, um, uh, we weren't able to cover within our allotted time, please do send an email to eop.program at aspeninstitute.org and we'll try to connect you to the appropriate respondent or resource after this webinar. If you have any technical issues during the webinar, you can chat with Tony Mastria or email. Again, the email address is eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email following the webinar and posted on our website. Okay, so today, we find ourselves in most extraordinary times as we are confronting the COVID-19 pandemic and the unfolding and rather extreme economic deterioration. Over 22 million have applied for unemployment benefits. Countless others are experiencing reduced work hours or other economic hardships. The immediate appearance of long food lines at uh, food distribution centers in the wake of massive job loss is a stark illustration of the degree of economic precarity that too many working people have been living with for far too long. For the past four decades, America's workers have experienced stagnant earnings, eroding benefits, rising risks, and a fraying safety net. The toll this steady erosion in the quality of work and in the economic well-being of working families um, has taken is now being laid bare. If you are like me, you've noticed many media comparisons of our current crisis to previous global crises in the last century, Spanish flu, World War I, and World War II. And a hopeful note in some of those comparisons was that from those hardships, important systems of social support were built that, for a time, allowed more broadly shared prosperity. 
It is important to note, however, that we did not all come together. Uh, Black Americans were systemically and systematically included from systems of shared prosperity uh, in, in previous generations. In addition, in those earlier eras, worker organizations played critical roles in improving the quality of work and demanding an economy in which we could all share in the benefits. So today we're going to have a conversation about how worker organizations are responding to the current crisis, the crisis of COVID-19. We have three outstanding leaders of this field to share their experiences and insights with us today. I am going to introduce them very, very briefly, and we're going to have a conversation for about 35 minutes to lay out what they do, the particular challenges that are emerging now, and the ways in which their organizations are responding to meet the urgent needs of workers today, while also planning for the longer term. And then we're going to turn to your questions. Remember, you can chat them uh, in, chat your questions in at any time during our conversation. Um, you can also upvote questions of other panelists if you want to draw attention to them. Okay, so joining me today are Amanda Reem, Strategic Campaign Director, United Domestic Workers of America, AFSME. Amanda's a Job Quality Fellow with the Aspen Institute. Um, and uh, United Domestic Workers represents uh, 100,000 caregivers in California, and Amanda leads their Care Agenda, a campaign to address the care crisis and create universal access to long-term care. Uh, Tanya Wallace-Goburn, Executive Director, National Black Worker Center Project, um, is also a Job Quality Fellow with the Aspen Institute. The National Black Worker Center Project has affiliates in Baltimore, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, New Orleans, Mississippi, Illinois, the Bay Area, and Los Angeles. And Michelle Miller is co-founder and co-director of coworker.org, which is a digital worker organizing platform. So it's a pleasure to welcome you all to today's conversation. Um, and I'm going to ask you all to more fully introduce yourselves and say a few words about the primary role your organization has played uh, to empower workers and allow them to win respect and better treatment on the job. And Amanda, um, let's start with you. You run a campaign for a traditional union, but advocate for the rights of what might be seen as non-traditional workers in that home care workers are often in non-standard employment relationships. So can you tell us a little bit about that work? Thanks for the introduction, Maureen. Yes, um, so I am part of United Domestic Workers, AFSME, and we work with home care workers, direct care workers who provide um, services to seniors and people with disabilities in their homes. And so this is the most intimate of direct care work. Our members provide um, shopping, cleaning, help with dressing, help with using the bathroom. So they're really on the front line of taking care of people who are very vulnerable during this COVID crisis. They're taking care of people who need very um, close monitoring and um, uh, very important services at this time. And we're also working to expand long-term care to as many people as possible in the state of California. So we know that many middle-class folks, many seniors, People who are part of the baby boomer generation are going to need access to long-term care and it's very difficult to find it at this time and so we're part of preparing the workforce to meet those needs. Great, 
Thank you, Amanda. Um, Tanya, you work with worker centers focused on the particular concerns of black workers in disparate geographies across the country. Can you tell us a little bit about the Black Worker Center project um, and the kind of work you do? Sorry, I had to unmute myself. Thank you so much, Maureen. I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak and um, join this conversation today. Um, I would start off by saying that it's unfortunate but true that ethnic and racial origin has perhaps the greatest impact on jobs, compensation, and a worker's option for redress when mistreated by an employer. Black workers face a, a racialized political economy in which they are exploited because of their race and their class. And it's from that reality that the Black Worker Centers were created and exist today. As you mentioned before, we are a network of eight Black Worker Centers across the country, North, South, East, and West. And we are unified by our commitment to end racism in the workplace um, regarding uh, workplace policies and practices. Each of our Black Worker Centers has developed a unique um, way and practices that reflect how Black workers are impacted by local racialized political um, economies. The overarching principle that guides our work is the importance of Black worker centers building power through organizing in order to achieve a collective voice for Black workers in the workplace and to change public policy. And that um, means for us that we organize for power and not just delivering services to individuals. Our centers are community-based and community-led organizations that engage in a combination of service, advocacy, and organizing to provide support to low-wage workers, and those are workers that make $35,000 or less. Uh, we are focused on developing the ability of members to represent themselves um, to public officials and the media, as well as employers, and to recruit and lead other workers choosing um, the issues that are most important to them and their communities. Our main focus, again, is organizing um, for power. Yeah, great. Thank you, Tanya. That's terrific. Um, so Michelle, let's uh, turn to you. You're co-founder of an online platform to help workers advocate for themselves. Uh, tell us a little bit about what inspired you and your co-founder to start coworker.org and the uh, principal activities that you've been involved in. Thanks so much, Maureen. Um, so coworker.org is, um, as you explained, a digital platform that supports worker organizing um, and helping workers to learn about how collective advocacy can have a role in shifting conditions inside their workplaces. And um, Jess Kutch, uh, who is an Aspen Job Quality Fellow, and I co-founded Coworker in 2013, um, really in response to what we were seeing doing already through social media and other online tools, which was engaging in informal acts of organizing around policies in their workplaces that struck them as unfair or unjust. And we both came from the more formal labor movement um, where we recognized that with 6% of the uh, private sector workforce in unions, that there were many, many people um, who were quite likely interested in organizing, but didn't have access to 
um, immediate access to the um, institutional knowledge of formal institutions um, or the ability to organize in traditional ways. And so what we wanted to learn about and provide for was what is the infrastructure that um, we can offer to people who are really new to organizing and new to building power inside their workplaces and how can we ensure that that process of learning about collective advocacy and winning change in the workplace is a positive generative one that makes people want to come back. Um, so over the past seven years, we have supported um, the growth of networks inside of companies like Starbucks, where workers um, have won changes like scheduling reforms, wage increases, paid family leave, places like Google, where we worked with tech employees to shift Google's code of, con code of the conduct and address human rights implications of the technology they were building um, with Wells Fargo bank tellers around um, sales goals and uh, the potential for consumer fraud and a number of other networks of, of workers who through their work with coworker and through their organizing work experienced what labor um, can mean, what labor organizing could mean for them for the first time ever. Um, and so we uh, imagine this, this infrastructure as both but being this online platform where workers can start their own campaigns, but also containing an enormous amount of background support for people, strategic advice, media strategy, content and education and education production, um, all kinds of background leadership development work that we do. Um, and that allows us to kind of have a meta view of the workforce where we work in multiple sectors across the economy. Yeah, great. That's amazing. Um, and uh, let me just stick with you for a minute because um, you're sort of in this uh, uh, incredible place. You know, we're all using technology an awful lot more now in our lives, even as we're connecting for this conversation. Um, and uh, so it seems like it's a, it's a great time uh, in some ways to be an online organizer. Um, and I'm just curious sort of what you're seeing in terms of how people are responding now to the using your platform, um, both just in terms of how much they're using it as, as well as sort of um, what are the, are there new issues that people are raising in this moment? Yeah, so we've um, seen a real explosion of activity on the website over the past six weeks. Um, our, cam our volume of campaigns has increased by 40 times. Um, within the first two weeks of the crisis, there were over 100 campaigns created by frontline workers um, to address uh, COVID-related conditions in their workplaces. And what we have seen over the past six weeks is a kind of wave and these waves and activities that are indicators of what frontline workers are concerned about and what they're experiencing. Um, so the first sort of set of campaigns that we saw were related to paid sick days policies inside the workplaces. Um, both um, uh, some workers advocating for paid sick days at all and other workers addressing the need to modify paid sick days policies so that they're not reliant on showing up with a doctor's note in a moment when there's so much pressure on the healthcare system or reliant on uh, proving in the case of coronavirus that you, are, you have tested positive before you're allowed to access paid sick days. Um, we also saw um, very early the, the demands for hazard pay by growth employees who recognized the danger that they were being placed in and also their essential role in the economy to ensure that those of us who are staying home have the ability to eat and feed ourselves. Um, we have also seen waves of campaigns by healthcare workers 
delivery workers and other and postal workers for basic access to PPE and protective equipment. And, and one of the other really interesting um, trends that we've seen are um, workers in businesses that have declared themselves as challenging the notion, notion of what is a economy. Um, and so people at, that are selling smoothies or office equipment who are saying this work is not the most important work that could be happening right now. We should rethink who, who and what is essential in this economy. And so, you know, all of these campaigns kind of have come together to um, have thousands and thousands of workers who, again, have never taken workplace action in their lives, but are really concerned about the health implications, not just for themselves, but for their families, their communities, of their businesses staying open. Um, really early in the crisis, Starbucks baristas successfully um, closed the um, closed cafes um, up until May, about early May, and they were able to retain full pay um, during that time. Uh, um, we've seen some of the grocery store workers, especially in regional chains, actually win their efforts to um, receive um, hazard pay. And we have um, been supporting nurses who are also working really hard to improve the PPE situations in their hospitals. So. Um, you know, we always intended that coworker would be that kind of accessible, easy to grab onto infrastructure for people who were in a moment of um, needing to be able to organize. And we knew that that had to be available to people online so that it, they could, that anyone anywhere could grab it um, and that they could be able to connect. Um, we thought, you know, just across geographies and across states. Um, and now what we're seeing is even it's necessary for workers to connect across town. Um, and so we're really happy to be in a position to provide that to workers. Yeah, great. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, Tanya, let me turn to you because um, even though they've designed it to be as easy to grab onto as possible, not everybody has an easy time accessing technology. Um, and the approach uh, your centers have used has typically relied on more in-person interaction. So um, can you talk a little bit about how your uh, centers are adjusting in this time when we're all trying to uh, use keep physical distancing and, and what are the issues that, are, that you see emerging um, that people are sure. talking about? You know, when, you, when we think about organizing, there are some fundamental um, practices that take place the, that begin with one, having, um, giving workers an opportunity to tell their story about their experiences um, that they are um, having on, uh, on their job. And then that's followed by connecting them with other individuals that share that experience, that share similar stories so that they can um, be in relationship with one another. And so the first component of organizing really hinges on being able to build that one-on-one -on -one communication and relationship with someone. Um, and it's through that relationship that um, a momentum takes place where people are then able to organize around um, joint issues and same issues and, and concerns that they have. And so this has totally changed our structure. The one-on-one -on -one organizing and relationship building that we previously engaged in took place in person. It took place um, during leadership development activities, um, membership meetings, political education training, door-to-door -door canvassing, all of that is, is off the table for us now. And so what we've had to do is to 
to shift our way of, of thinking about organizing and working to implement a lot of the practices that Coworker has done from the, the beginning and for the past seven years. And it's been difficult um, for us when we look at um, the, our, our membership and the workers that we traditionally are reaching out to, they now have, in addition to the demands of their jobs, they're working um, fearfully um, afraid of um, you know, becoming ill. They're working with the demand, increased demand of having children at home and having the increased um, um, burden, if you will, of having to provide more meals at home when they may have just been responsible for it for dinner. Now it's lunch and breakfast as well. They're responsible for, for homeschooling, or homeschooling, homeschooling, excuse me. And so their personal time has decreased. A lot of our members that we've spoken to have talked about having to take on an additional job in order to make their ends meet. And what that results is, and is people being very tired and asking someone to at the end of your long day of caring for your children, your personal uh, responsibilities to get on a webinar or a conference call is, is very daunting for, for a lot of people. I think in our profession, it's, it's normal for us to be, um, to join a conference call or a webinar such as this one um, for an hour. We don't think much of it because it's part of our day-to-day our -day routine. However, that's not um, part of the routine for a lot of the people that we interact with. And so we are um, practicing and testing out um, using text and working to communicate with people more frequently, but with um, shorter intervals of, of conversation. The other challenge that we have is just training our staff and our organizers to, to work online and to move people from online conversations to offline um, relationships. And so moving them from um, their texting on their cell phone or the internet to, or your computers and tablets to picking up the phone and having a conversation. And that transition is, is, is different um, for us. It's not as, as comfortable for our staff because it's just not as familiar. Additionally, um, many of our centers um, have door-to-door -door canvassing um, teams, and that is part of what they did. And so transitioning to moving from um, an in-person door-to-door interaction to calling and doing um, phone banking can be different um, and difficult as well when that's not the way that you communicated in the past. People don't recognize telephone numbers, so they're less likely to, um, to pick up the phone if they don't know who's calling them. And um, you know, just the, the, a lot of the scamming that goes on with telephone calls and, and, um, and other people that are calling make people less um, inclined to, to pick up the phone. So it's, it's a bit of a challenge for us, but we know that it's possible because we've looked at other organizations um, like United for Respect, who've got a, um, a long track record and online to offline organizing. And so we're working to learn from them and learn as fast as we can so that we can get up to speed and continue our organizing. Yeah, great. Thank you, Tanya. Um, and uh, Amanda, you work with healthcare workers and many of whom are going to work um, and kind of working on the front lines. I imagine you sort of relate to Tanya's comments about people going to work a bit fearfully. Um, I'm wondering, you know, sort of what are some of the new issues that are coming up uh, for, for your work in this, in this moment? 
Thanks, Maureen. Yeah, let me talk about home care workers in California, uh, which is where we work. So home care workers, they're working in people's homes. Again, seniors, people with disabilities, um, very close contact. And so we're really on the front lines of this pandemic. So at this point, we've got, um, we have 100,000 members. These are union members working across California in home care. We're already over um, 50 of our members who are themselves COVID positive and many, many more who are taking care of COVID positive, primarily seniors. Um, and so, and we, we can't really say that we're seeing um, one way that people contract COVID. Uh, our members are out there in the community and grocery stores doing shopping, uh, taking their clients to medical appointments as well as working in the home. So we're seeing some transmission in healthcare environments. And because our members oftentimes also live in the home of the client that they're providing services to, there's a lot of close contact. And so while we've been working closely with our governor's office of emergency services to figure out what the best practices are in home care, the fact of the matter is home care workers are some of the most poorly paid workers in our state, even with a union. So all of our members earn around minimum wage um, in some places like um, San Diego or Orange County, California, wages can be a little bit higher, um, but this is a very low wage job. And oftentimes our members work many, many hours that they're uncompensated for because they care so much about how the clients are doing. So it's definitely an emergency time. It's an all hands on deck time. And we're really having to fight and engage our state officials in seeing home care providers as healthcare workers. Um, that means we've had uh, very long um, efforts to get the, the PPEs that Michelle mentioned, the protective equipment. We also went into the COVID epidemic having one day or two days of sick time a year. So we were able to advocate for two weeks of sick time, which we really think is the bare minimum for a home care provider, uh, somebody who's working in close contact with a vulnerable person. Um, and we're also working to try to address the issue of, um, hey, we're trying to uh, improve conditions in the direct care uh, industry overall. We definitely think that minimum wage is not how we're gonna grow the skills or grow the ability of direct care workers to provide additional services to clients or to attract more people to the profession at a time where we're gonna need more than 200,000 more direct care workers, as I mentioned, to take care of the baby boomer population. So our wage increases are tied to how the economy is doing in California. And so many of you will recall the fight for 15. Uh, home care workers in California stood to be a major beneficiary of those efforts, but our wage increases are tied to how the economy is doing in California. We're not gonna know till about mid-July what the tax and revenue picture looks like in the state of California, but it's a very difficult situation for our members to think that we won't be able to have those basic wage increases up to $15 an hour in 2022. So I could talk a lot more about the lives of our members in uh, working on the front lines of COVID, but I really wanted to lift up these very basic struggles that we have around professionalization, around safety and equipment, and around wages.
Great. Thank you so much. Um, that's a perfect segue into sort of my last uh, round of questions before we go to the um, audience questions. And I see we have a number coming in and there were a number that were sent online. So we'll, we'll try to get to those um, soon. Um, but you all are organizers, planners, you are fierce advocates for the workers you represent. I know um, even as you are sort of working really hard right now to figure out how do you meet the current and urgent demands um, uh, workers are presenting in this moment, you all also have an eye to the future. So um, just to, I'm wondering if you could each tell us about a kind of a priority for our post-pandemic world that you are thinking about and um, maybe working towards now. Um, and uh, Tanya, let me just start with you. I'll go to you, then Amanda, then Michelle. Tanya? Tanya, you have to unmute. Thank you, sorry about that. No. Um, you know, in this moment when there is a huge focus on essential workers and an appreciation for their labor, we think that this is also an opportunity to change the narrative about what real appreciation is and the value that we place on these workers' labor. I personally find it ironic that the same people who we have had to battle for tooth and nail to pay $15 an hour are the exact same people that we depend on for our most indispensable needs, that they are um, the most underpaid and undervalued, and they're also now seen as the most critical to our daily survival. And I would say it's not just because of COVID-19, they've always served this role. However, our society took their work for granted, and because of who these workers are, predominantly women and people of color, they were deemed as less deserving. One out of every three women are essential workers. Black people are overwhelmingly working on the front lines, be it as bus drivers, hotel workers, food servers, city um, service employees, etc. Black people are disproportionately public sector employers, employees, excuse me. And so we are supporting policies that quickly provide 100% wage race replacement and pay sick leave um, and any other policies that provide the workers with necessary protective gear. Black people are also amongst those in warehouses and other industries that are protesting unsafe working conditions. We believe that they must be protected to, um, with the, to the full extent of the law and changing laws to ensure that any worker that engage in concerted activity, um, that action is protected. Um, black workers are disproportionately unhoused. And so any policy that gets them off the streets and into unused hotel rooms, for example, not mass shelters, which become virus incubators are very important to us. Black people also are disproportionately incarcerated which is another incubator for the virus. So any policies that reduce the prison population are very important to us. And as Blacks are dying at a higher rate, higher than other populations, burial funds, bereavement funds, and mental health provisions are definitely needed. At the National Black Workers Center, we feel that this is a time for, for bold leadership. It's a time for us to reach for and take advantage of this moment, allowing us to reach for gains that we might not have ever dreamed 
possible, but are now possible because of the emphasis that's playing on, that's being seen um, and given to workers. And so we are looking at components of a social welfare system that truly works in the ways that we want and we need. And one of the things that we are wanting to, to, to launch and move forward with is policy that um, eliminates wage secrecy and, and promotes wage transparency so that we can end this um, cycle and system of uh, Black people and people of color and women not being paid equally for the work that they are doing that others are doing. Yeah. Great, that is that is terrific, and that's a lot to work on. Um, Amanda, uh, curious what you're looking for in your in the post COVID nineteen world. Yeah, absolutely yes to everything that Tanya said. These are all really important um, policy gains that we want to make for home care workers as well in California. Um, let me talk a little bit about the landscape that we work in. So we already know that we have a care crisis across our country and in California. We already know that there are shortages of home care workers, particularly for uh, older Americans. And so our work before the COVID crisis was an attempt to expand eligibility for long-term care to more people, actually to everyone. Uh, we certainly see that more and more middle-class people are having to spend down to Medicaid levels of poverty in order to receive the care that they need in the home to age in their homes. And so the whole body of work that we've been doing around direct care, right, our attempts to create more access to direct care for more people, this is more critical than ever now that we have most of our population in California sheltering in place. So we've seen very valiant efforts from our State Department of Aging and our elected officials in California to try to address the needs of seniors and people with disabilities um, we're now expanding access to our state's Medicaid program and our child care program for essential workers. So there's efforts to use federal relief funds to make more services available to more people who are now going to need them because of the crisis. And certainly to be able to attract workers to this industry, we're going to have to improve the wages and the standards. Mm -hmm. So this all fits hand in hand. And certainly we're gonna to have to address the fact that COVID is a workplace acquired infection for many direct care workers who are working in people's homes. And so we're working on the issue of uh, presumptive eligibility for workers' compensation. Many of our members are over the age, actually most of them are over the age of 60, 65 themselves. And so access to disability insurance, unemployment insurance, all the basic social safety net programs that we think of that are uh, so many people are applying for, it's extra challenging for our membership. So we really wanna strengthen and stabilize access to these programs for direct care workers. Um, and certainly we're gonna to have to keep a really close eye on the economy in California. Um, we know that California is a state where the population is getting older and is gonna need access to more of these services. So while we have a broad social justice vision of access to the safety net for everyone. It's really our union and our members who see what's needed. And we really wanna do everything we can to uh, make it possible them for, for them to speak truth to power and really extend this vision of aging in place and of people with disabilities being able to live in their homes. I could say a lot more about how direct 
care workers are the front lines of that, but I want to make sure we get to some questions. So back to you, Maureen. Yeah, great. Thank you. And, and Michelle, to, to you on your sort of uh, post-COVID-19 priorities. Yeah, so one thing that we've been thinking a lot about at Coworker, um, because we're hearing from folks on our platform so much about it, is um, how we reimagine the unemployment uh, process in this country um, and the ways in which people are expected to interact with the unemployment insurance system. Um, Many people on this call have probably come across news articles and media pieces about um, the overwhelming burden on uh, state unemployment agencies, the impossibility of getting through, the inability to use the websites, um, and uh, the delays and people actually finding out in this moment when 21 million people that we know of are experiencing unemployment, whether or not they're going to start receiving benefits. Um, and so what, uh, what, what we know a lot of those delays are predicated on is a, an unemployment system that is currently treats um, unemployment as something that is the individual that is a temporary state um, and that pushes people to get back into jobs as quickly as possible through a process that um, based on our research um, is actually somewhat humiliating, that, that really um, kind of uh, infantilizes the people that are searching for jobs, pushes them to find you know, the, the next best thing um, and doesn't really put them in a position to be seeking out meaningful work um, and work that will allow them to make a decent wage and make a decent living, um, find a good employer. Um, and so in a situation where there are so many people who are out of work and there are few jobs for people to actually go and find, this could be a moment for um, these unemployed workers to start organizing together and envisioning what kind of unemployment infrastructure we want in this country to address these periods of shock to the economy. Um, we, we anticipate that until there's a vaccine within 18 months to two years, that the economy is going to go through a couple of these phases of opening and closing. And so the current situation that we have, the current infrastructure that we have is just insufficient to what people are facing. And so on, on one end of that, you know, as I said, we're, getting, we're, we're really eager to start experimenting with what unemployed worker councils could look like with what people who are going through the system currently um, expect from the system and what, what it can be doing better, what people who are working in the unemployment insurance system, which has been um, starved of funding, um, like many other government agencies, what they would like to see change, um, and, and what kind of narrative change we all see about what we say about why people are out of work about what's possible in this economy and the ways in which we treat low-wage people who are looking for other work, um, whether or not we treat them like they should be agents in their own lives and be able to make um, the best decisions for themselves. So, so that, I, I think, is going to be a really important piece of work for us to dig into. Um, and it's going to be a moment, um, and it's a moment when workers um, and people who are formerly employed will be eager to reshape that. I think the second thing I'll just say very quickly is that um, uh, we have, this is a moment when we should also review what OSHA is capable of doing and what we regard as health and safety for workers. 
um, and to expand the definitions of health and safety and to expand the mandate of OSHA to actually provide for people's health and safety on their jobs. OSHA is another example of an agency that provides critical support for workers, but is uh, really limited in funding, it does not have enough staff, um, and, and could be um, could be at the front lines of actually making the recommendations and enforcing the recommendations that are necessary in order to keep workers um, and people who are coming into places that are still open protected, but currently are not in a, in a position to really be able to do that at the scale that they should be. So those are the two things that we're thinking yeah thank you thank you thank you all so much and you know and i'm particularly struck by you know this uh theme that i think has been um running throughout about um you know sort of both the um elevating the importance of the work that workers are doing and how that broad recognition maybe creates some opportunities but also this and i think um michelle this is something you were particularly bringing up sort of that you know, social insurance, the need for social insurance should not be a source of shame and people should be able to retain their dignity um, when they need help from these, these social support systems. Um, and I think as we, you know, I was struck when I was looking at some of the, the questions that came in before about also questions around whether, whether businesses are sort of changing their attitude towards um, some, some parts of things, whether they're sort of um, moving to make their um, workplaces safer, whether they're moving to um, better recognize the way they compensate and support their frontline workers. Um, and, you know, sort of are, are you seeing, we've been talking a lot about where we want to see public policy change and organizing for public policy, but are you, are you seeing any shifts? Are there any businesses, small, large, or anything that any of you are seeing that are sort of uh, maybe making some changes kind of on their own. I didn't see a lot of hands go up for that question. <laughs> I mean, I can share, you know, we saw um, very early in the first few weeks of the epidemic, we saw um, the pandemic, we saw, as I said, Starbucks closed store response to um, baristas demanding that um, they allowed them to retain pay. We saw that at REI, um, Patagonia, a couple of other places like that. Um, and then the regional grocery chains that very quickly responded to um, requests for um, hazard pay. I would say though, that there is a wonderful opportunity for especially large companies to, who, who, who have intended to implement policies to protect workers um, specifically around PPE and social distancing um, and practices at the store level to really pay attention to what they're actually hearing from the workers about the way that implementation and the enforcement of those rules is taking place. Because what we, what we hear a lot in our, in our social listening um, is workers from one store to another in these, in these national chains reporting wildly different experiences with the way that um, these, the, these kind of new practices are being implemented. And that often I think has to do with the fact that there's, there's very little um, upward communication from people at the store level to corporate and, and that, that because of the lack of organized power inside of these companies, it's difficult for workers to make these conditions known. And so it, it feels like an opportunity to actually listen and shift um, if, if companies are interested in seeing how those policies are implemented.
Great, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I think I think this opportunity to really listen um, is is an important opportunity that hopefully uh, doesn't go go to waste. Um, uh, I have another question on how can national and state policymakers best lift up worker demands when we are asked to weigh in on on policy asks. So what what should they be? What they sh how should state and policy state um, national and state policymakers um, respond. So I'll um, start and, and say that um, policymakers should hold conversations with, with workers. One of the things that we've been talking about, there's an initiative that we started with the National Black Worker Center called Black Voices, Black Votes, and we surveyed over 5,000 workers to better understand um, their willingness and experiences engaging with elected officials. And one of the things that came through from that survey was workers saying that even when they want to, one, they, they tend to be intimidated because they think that there, there are barriers between them having conversations with their elected officials. But then two, once they get past that barrier, the, 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 the time slot, if you will, for people to communicate with their elected officials is very limiting, right? So their, their hours take place when, when workers are, are at work. Um, and so I think that one of the things that we can all take advantage of and elected officials should take advantage of is um, having online town halls, having meetings that are virtual that take place in the evening after six o'clock, after people have had dinner and kids have gone to sleep when, um, workers are able to focus and give their attention. And I think hosting and inviting organizations, grassroots and community organizations to reach out to their congregations and invite people to those meetings is a good first step. Yeah, great. Um, I have a question for Amanda, um, uh, which is uh, the person writes, I so appreciate the notion that job quality will have to improve for these industries um, to attract workers in the future, are you at all afraid that a recession and rampant need, rampant need for survival income might decrease the power of organizing? Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And that's been a fundamental question of this work for the 25 years I've been in it and longer before that. And so I think what we're looking at here is yet, while we don't exactly know yet what the economy is going to look like in periods, we've seen this, you know, every 10 years or so, where the economy um, is less robust, um, that's an opportunity in many cases for the federal government, other state governments to roll back the services, the gains that we've made, right, in long-term care, certainly in social services in general. And so we're hoping in the state of California and then also across the country to be able to look at the economy differently going forward, certainly with, um, Healthcare, we've seen improvements, but looking at this broad um, complement of family services, where we look at childcare all the way up to long-term care together, being able to apply the social insurance model, where we see that more people, regardless of income, need access to these services and are willing to contribute to them, are willing to pay something towards them. And so what we're looking at in this coming economic crisis, right, that we all believe is probably gonna take place, 
um, it's an opportunity for us to talk about the models that we see that actually work and then to build the workforce that we need in order to provide those services. So I think that we're stronger than we've ever been before. The American labor movement, certainly all the people that we work in coalition with who are deeply invested in the fate of children and seniors in our society. So I think that we have um, really good standing at this moment, particularly in California, Illinois, New York, also looking across the country um, to be able to elevate a lot of these professions that previously were the professions and also the people who experienced the harshest cuts during the previous recessions. And so while I can't tell you that we know exactly how to survive what's coming, I don't think any of us do. I think we know the model that's gonna benefit the most Americans and it's really important for us as an organization and certainly for the labor movement to really be able to describe that vision in a way that's gonna make sense for the most Americans. Great, thank you. Um, this question might be kind of for Michelle. Um, uh, they're asking about uh, rural areas have sparse to no internet services um, and workers and families with children are affected a lot by this issue, um, you know, both in terms of sort of connecting to work and through, on, but also connecting their children to education. Um, are you aware of any discussions to affect sort of this disparity in access to uh, internet services? Yeah, thanks. Um, I really appreciate that question. And I, I, um, I grew up in a rural area, and so I've thought a lot about rural broadband. And um, it, it, has, it has occurred to me over the past couple of weeks that um, the work from home orders are just not going to work for a lot of people. Um, and I, there are a lot of groups um, who are thinking about this. They really approach this from a technology policy standpoint that, uh, um, and a communications policy standpoint. Um, but it, it is an interesting moment to start thinking about how we weave together um, those kinds of institutions. I think of the, the Center for Rural Strategies um, as one example of a group that's been working on rural broadband for a really long time. Um, and I think that, that it, it's one of the many indicators that these things traditionally considered to be technology policy actually end up being workplace policy, education policy, and so tied into the things that we are going to have to consider when we're thinking about what the workplace means in the 21st century. Yeah. So, and Michelle, I'm just curious, do you know, like, where workers are in, on your platform? Like, do you know if you're reaching worker, workers in rural areas or to what degree you do that? I'm just curious. Yeah, we, um, we reach a lot of workers in rural areas. I mean, for, for most people who come to co-worker actually come through their phones, not for, through desktop computers. Oh, uh, so about, um, it's a 70 percent uh, come through phones, 10% through tablets, and then 10% through desktop. Most of the people on our platform are um, low in lower wage industries and the technology that you can afford is the telephone, is, is the smartphone. Um, and um, we do tend to have um, a lot of uh, joiners and petition creators in the South. Um, we have a huge footprint in the Southern quarter chain publics um, and to places where there is just not as much um, in-person 
infrastructure around labor organizing as you might see in the industrial cities or in the coastal cities. And so, yeah, we actually have a pretty high rate of people from rural and city areas. Great, great, thank you. Um, a question for Tanya, um, seeing that this is uh, an economic justice issue, what would you say to white business owners, advocates, and allies um, that they should do in this uh, uh, to, as an opportunity to move the needle for Black essential workers? Mm -hmm. I would say that they need to be vocal. And, and not silent. They should speak about the value and the contributions that their employees make to their business, how they are essential for them, and how they are and why they are worth um, a higher, higher wages, higher benefits, and higher and greater protections. I think that one of the greatest um, atrocities in our country is people's um, failure to, to be vocal and to speak out and to allow a smaller percentage of people um, to, to control what happens in our country. And so the greatest thing that they could do in addition to, well, first, let's make sure that they are paying um, um, quality wages, benefits, et cetera, and then being vocal about why that is important to do so and how their ben business benefits from having these employees and paying them quality wages. Yeah. Great. I think that's a part of the argument that we just don't hear enough of. Terrific, thank you. Um, this question uh, apparently got a lot of um, uh, upvotes, which is, I guess, um, uh, and it is the pandemic has highlighted the significant role of essential frontline workers, grocery store workers, transit workers, food and package delivery, and more. Um, the workforce development field has uh, uh, defined good jobs as jobs that have career pathways um, to family sustaining wages. How do you think the workforce development field uh, and public policy should respond to this moment? I can answer that, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, we're really seeing probably unprecedented uh, in, you know, times around the value of the public sector. So traditionally, public sector jobs, because they've been union jobs, have really been some of the highest quality jobs, certainly for lower wage workers. And so I think that we have opportunities when we're looking at state purchasing, when we're looking at the whole um, field of what the services are that the state is interacting with the private sector and providing we have an opportunity to make sure that the standards and the wages in those industries in particular like reflect job quality make it possible for somebody to have a family right to be able to afford an apartment housing being a big issue here in california and all around the country and so we're really looking at as the public sector responds to this crisis how can we then you know, this has been a solution that's been around for 100 years. How can we make sure that as more and more of the services are provided by the private sector, that they're provided high quality job level? Yeah, um, great. Um, I can see we're getting pretty close to time. So I, um, I'm wondering if you each just have like one final sentence or thought that you want to, um, you know, have everybody kind of walk away with about sort of 
how they can uh, maybe be thinking about what's the voice of workers and how they could play a role in supporting it um, in, at this time. Um, uh, so Amanda, I don't know if you, if you wanna say anything just to, just to close. Sure. Yeah, I would just like to remind us all that we're seeing now, we all know that, that most of us will need at least one year of access to home care in our lives. And certainly we've all needed access to childcare. And so this is an opportunity for us to make sure that these workers have dignity and that these workers' concerns are heard and that we see wages in childcare and in home care that reflect the value of these services. Great. Tanya? So I would add that um, there has been a lot of discussion about when we go back to normal. And I would challenge people to, to resist that. We don't want to go back to normal. What was normal got us in the position we are right now. What was normal, what we considered normal, was actually very dysfunctional. We can't go back to what what we what would have happened in the past in terms of the ways that we treated workers, the ways that we compensated workers, the way that we value workers. We cannot go back to this mentality that says some people are less deserving than others. And so what I would challenge and invite others to join the National Black Workers Center in is pushing back on that narrative and saying this is the new normal that we want and that we are standing up for and fighting for. Great, thank you. Michelle? Thank you, Tanya. Yeah, I mean, and I, I would say that a piece of that, that new normal is something that has become clearer than ever over the past six weeks, which is that it is frontline workers who have the most information about what is happening inside the economy and what is happening to us on a day-to-day -day basis. And when we put ourselves in the position of actually listening to what they need, what demands they're making, what, what data they have about what is happening in stores and hospitals and communities, that is the thing that can help us make the kinds of decisions that are going to raise standards for everyone else. Um, and so, you know, what we, we've seen so much of um, overnight, especially in terms of our relationships with journalists, frontline workers being treated like experts um, in a way that they ne never have before. And I hope that we can hang on to that going forward um, in the new normal where we regard the expertise that workers have about what's happening in the front lines of the economy as um, as, as important and as valuable as um, the traditional holders of power in that world. Great. Thank you. Thank you all so much. I really want to thank um, all of you for a fabulous conversation today. Um, I want to thank our audience for, for joining us um, and for sending so many questions. Um, I know we didn't uh, get to all of them, um, but uh, again, if you if there was a burning question we couldn't get to, please do send us an email at eop.aspeninstitute.eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. Um, uh, please do take a moment to respond to our quick feedback survey at the close of this webinar, or you can again send us an email and let us know what you think. Um, we love to hear from you and we hope you'll join us again. There'll be more in this series coming soon, so stay tuned. Um, thanks everybody and uh, that concludes our session today.